Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Scuttlebutt. I'm Vic. I'm here with Nancy. And we are super excited, um, as always. But uh, this is one that we've really been looking forward to for some time now. Uh, author of the book Freaks of the Feather. Um, machine Gunner from 2-3. Now current law student, Casey Tellison. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I was looking at your past guests, and I'm pretty rarefied air around here. Yeah, well, actually, we're, we're going to get into it um, because, interestingly enough, uh, you wrote uh, a book review of Tom Schumann's book, Always Faithful, which, you know, we were all totally all over, um, you know, just fawning over. Um, so we'd love to get your feedback on that. But, I mean, your book, Freaks of a Feather, is so in that category um it, we were talking before the show started man but like your prose is just absolutely i mean it's it's pristine um and the way that you tell your story i know like for tom you know he used the braided narrative approach yours is just it's sort of just straightforward storytelling man but it's just so engaging um anyways i'm wasting a lot of what we're going to get into <laughs> later man but i just want to as we start, man, my hat's off to you that your writing is is really amazing. Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, as you know, too, it's like it takes a long time to get all those tools necessary to be able to try to string pictures and themes together and images. So it's it was mainly just a product of reading a lot of books, you know, stealing as much as I can from the greats and trying to, you know, turn it into my own. You definitely turned it into your own. It's some of the best writing I've ever read. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely want to get into, you know, where you sharpened your your tools um, there at uh, was Eastern Washington, right? Correct. Yep. Um, so uh, my hat's definitely off to my hat's off to the faculty there at the Creative Writing <laughs> Department, Eastern Washington, man, because that uh, yeah, it, that's the hidden jewel of the literary world. If uh, if you know you're coming out of there writing like that, you know, it's really the a product of uh, one of the professors out there, uh, Rachel Tours, her name. I mentioned her in my acknowledgments of the book, but she uh, she was the one that really, she opened up her library to me when I was going through the course. So she would essentially, I'd be assigned one book for her class and then she'd give me two additional books to read a week. And then I, she was like, these are the books that you should have already read. So she helped me out a lot. And she helped me, she helped me with a few drafts of the book too. And she's yeah, just, I can't thank her enough for all the help she put in and all the work she put in on my stuff. That's amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if everybody had uh, really in incredible professors like that? Yeah, I think when you show that you're willing to do the work, that can be a rarity in some of these schools. So when you're like actually enthusiastic and willing to put in the hours, I think that that can be the difference maker and maybe building one of those relationships that, you know, like I had with Rachel. I think too... Um at least based off of your prose and if you were writing like this uh you know throughout the program not you know all of us have to work very hard even when it's we have a natural talent for something there's still a tremendous amount of work that has to go in to cultivate that and fine-tune it and those things but if you even if she was able to see this level of writing ability in you early on uh again like my hat's off to your faculty but it's um it just is interesting, and I guess a point that I want our listeners to take away is that um, you are in a unique position also being a veteran in an arts department, um, and especially a literary arts department, where a lot of the books and the memoirs and things are coming out, and it's like, oh, look at me in my fucking t-shirt, you know, like, I got it, you know, I did this, or like, you know, I'm so awesome, uh, you know, we I knew since I was born, I came out with a, you know, M4 carbine, you know, it, 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 it's just like all this like Navy SEALs, you know, all this. Sh and so to actually see something as like profound as what you're writing, um, I think for uh, uh, veterans and people listening to the show, like don't avoid going into the arts because you feel like it's either one oversaturated on the sort of memoir side or that it's not going to be for you because of the artistic skill that goes into it. I, I'm rambling. 
Um, but I just want to get your thoughts um, as you were coming into this, um, sort of the how the writing, because you said you read a lot, but then the writing part, like how did that all develop? Yeah, it started with, you know, um, I've said this before, but like the whole writing thing, for me, it started out as a uh, kind of a long suicide note I was writing. I was going to write this story down and just so my family had something to hold on to. And, um, and then I started writing, I started feeling better and I started like, Hey, maybe this is actually good for me and I can start to deal with some of this stuff. And from there I was like, well, maybe I should use this GI bill and actually use it for something I want. So I, um, got accepted at Eastern Washington university and got in a creative writing program. And that's where I just started seeing, you know, I, maybe I have a little bit of talent in this. And if I work hard, maybe I can write something. So it just started being my daily routine was a thousand words a day. And I would just, I would lock myself in the room and I wouldn't come out until I had a thousand words. Most of them sucked, you know, but uh, every now and then you get a couple, you know, you get a couple good paragraphs and you start to feel good about yourself. And you're like, you know, what? I can do this, you know? And um, that's just how it, how it went. And it, so that it took me a long time to get through school just because I was working full time. Also, I worked construction during those times. So I would only take like a quarter here, a quarter there. And um, so yeah, the whole process, I guess, took me like seven years, which is kind of embarrassing to get my undergrad all said and done. And uh, so the whole time I'm, I'm working on these little stories and Rachel had this. I just followed Rachel around to all of her different classes. And um, so she was probably starting to get pretty annoyed after a while. But uh um, essentially she would have these assignments, but then she would always have something she called the sandbox assignment, which is ironic, but, um, they would, uh, it was basically, she would give a prompt and you write, you got to write whatever you wanted. And then that's where I started writing a lot of these chapters, you know, that would start to be the start of what would become these chapters. And then it was 2017, I got a job on the railroad as a train conductor. And so I was away from home a lot. So I would just, I would go home and I, I would just, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to rewrite everything from start to finish in 2017, just put it in kind of a linear narrative and see what happens after that. And so that was one. I'm grateful for the railroad because I would essentially be gone for a couple of days, be staying in a hotel and I would just write the whole time. And uh, that one, I was able to put the book together and then start the editing process. You know, I think I start to finish eight to 10 times I rewrote the book. And uh, then it was just, it was just trying to find, find someone who wanted to publish it. And that was, that was a saga unto itself, but uh, we finally got her. So. Yeah. Well done. And I mean, well worth, uh, at least from the a reader standpoint, well worth your, uh, the wait for you and the time it was put, you put into it clearly you could see that. So you had, um, you know, in your book, you chronicle, you know, a lot of your journey uh, as a football or as a, a high school athlete um, sort of coming in on your own. I think a lot of that that kind of story resonates probably with a lot of our listeners is it sort of mirrors a lot of the young pre-Marine Corps story for a lot mm -hmm. of kids. I think it's more of an American teenager story, right? Like, I don't feel you know, I'm feeling awkward and weird. Um, and then you find something that you're good at, but you're still sort of that awkward person at the same time. And I thought you really ca captured that sort of the, the dynamics of growing up and then how um, you were drawn to the Marine Corps through your reading, but then through some of your experiences. I mean, could you sort of talk to us uh, about your life before uh, the yellow footprints and what led you to the recruiter's office yeah you know i think it's it's probably a really common story you know we just you're that age and you're just desperate for an identity and you don't really have one yet so you just start trying them on for size seeing who you want to be you're know, like am i a hat guy maybe i'm the guy that wears hats all the time you know, like you don't <laughs> you, you know who you want to be and so I just, it was one of those fortunate things. I got exposed to the Iliad for a uh, summer reading for English. And just the, I was just captured by the story, by the, you know, the martial aspect of everything. And then that just kind of was like a gateway drug for all these other books. And I eventually worked my way through, you know, World War One, World War Two, And I got into the stories of the Marines in Vietnam. And I was like, man, if I could be like these guys, if there's any chance I can do it, I have to try. Uh, particularly, uh, uh, guns up 
by Johnny Clark. That was a big one for me that I found. And that was about a machine gunner. So I was like, well, that seems like a good path, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was, that was, you know, kind of what I wanted. And it, it was always feeling like this feeling of like, I'm not good enough right now, but the Marine Corps will make me good. You know what I mean? Like I'll be, this is the way to get this persona that I, that I'm looking for, you know, like I'll have to go through this, this experience, but the Marine Corps can give that to me. And so that was, that was one of the things I was after for sure. And then, you know, I think it's, it's unique to the GWAT obviously, cause we're all volunteers. So I think that, that like the title of the book, Freaks with Feather, like it, the Marine Corps infantry at that time attracted a particular kind of person, you know, so we were all very similar in this design. I mean, some kids just wanted to escape their, their situation at home, but a lot of us were like after this experience and wanted to, wanted more and volunteered for this. Cause that's, I mean, and that's a huge difference between, you know, the literature that's coming out from the GWAT and then like Vietnam literature and that kind of stuff. We're very different people really. I mean, some of the experiences are very similar, but we all volunteered. You know, so that's that flavors the right. It should at least flavor the writing a little differently, because um, like Tim O'Brien, who I adore the things they carried. It's a fantastic book, but it's also well, one, it's part fiction, but it's it's from someone that was voluntold to go to war, didn't mm -hmm. volunteer, and so that's a, just a different story. And that was, I mean, reading a lot of the stuff that's come out of the Iraq War, I was like, I didn't, I hadn't read something. I was like, this is it. This this kind of isn't, this isn't bullshit. This is the real kind of a depiction of what it was like. And so that's what I was really trying to do is, you know, be the guy that, you know, that just told the common grunt story. And like I was telling you, the perils of trying to get published, uh, my first agent I had, she told me that there's no market for a regular grunt story. And I was like, I was like, that. well, I hope you're wrong, you know, and I vehemently disagree with you. And I just quit working with her after that. Cause I was like, that's, She's like, if you're not special forces, Navy SEALs, we don't want to read it. And I was like, okay, well, all the greatest war memoirs, I think, have been written by just regular grunts. You know what I mean? That's the stories like, you know, with the old breed, helmet from my pillow. Like, those are the classics to me. So I was like, that's that's a story I want to tell. And that's yeah. a more common experience. Yes. Yes. Just normal, normal people that are, you know, become infantrymen. We're not these exceptional special forces creatures. You know, we're just people out there doing a the job yeah i think even um you know i don't know much of his work um i've only heard him speak a few times but like i think marcus luttrell you know grant that he's coming from that sort of soft community but he had a much more uh i guess blue collar take on it, it seemed mm -hmm. like it was much more level-headed with lone survivor um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think one of the, one of the genesis or part of the genesis of this podcast was this idea that stories matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and that you're right. If you look at the shelves, man, it's just chock full of task force commander or Navy seal this, or I'm, you know, shot so-and-so in the head or whatever. Um, and there was very little, um, that had to deal with, like you said, just your grunt or, you know, your, am tracker or you know mm -hmm. radio operator corman um and there's definitely this sense that like well i guess what i did just doesn't matter then because you know i go out to the bars and people thank me for my service and then i get a beer out of it but no one asked me like what what did i do what do I? and mm -hmm. i'm glad they don't because all i did was stand post and it was like <laughs> and you even articulate this in your book it's like well, standing post is actually the most important thing because then everybody else has an opportunity to sleep and not worrying about dying. Mm -hmm. So it matters that you stood post and like the things that you saw are unique and they're anyways, that's the soapbox. I totally agree that I think that there's just so much more accessible and relatable story when you are talking about the Marine that stood post, walked patrol, maybe got in some firefights, maybe didn't but now is coming to grips with what all of that meant. Vice, the guy that said, I know what it all means because I shot Osama bin Laden or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, so I'm awesome. Anyways. Well, a lot of that too, it comes from di like the different structures of those organizations. Like, I don't feel like 
the special forces guys are going out on patrols looking for fights like the infantry does. Like they know the target they're going to hit. They go, they perform, they do their thing. Whereas a regular grunt, like we, they, they basically tell us you just walk around until you get shot at and then respond, you know, or walk right. around until you find the IED and then respond. So it's like, it's a whole different mental dynamic that goes on with that, you know, those two different deployments. I think I feel like mentally they're very different. What do you think about sort of that idea too of, um, and not to say that soft guys don't uh, run into um, sort of the facade that you spend a lot of your book interrogating um, this facade and then, you know, trying to understand who you are in this world that has a projection and then there are perceptions in return. Um, I think I, I'm thinking to the story that you uh, shared with the benefit tags, which I thought was hilarious was when I was on recruiting duty, you know, I totally remember the benefit tags and everything there. And I, I love your perspective. It's like, well, none of these things actually is me. And um, so I guess I'm just going to pick the ones that I think you want me to pick. Um, and I, I wonder if maybe that experience is it maybe isn't quite the same for these guys who, you know, always wanted to be soft. Now they're soft. They're doing exactly what they want to do. So they've just sort of, they their key has found the whole sort of thing. Whereas sort of uh, your, you know, sort of every, everyday O3XX is having to wrestle with a lot more of that push and pull of, of being a coming in on your own as a young devil dog. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And that's one of the things I was trying to scratch at there was just that like, for one, you're a kid. Like, do you really know who you are when you're 17 years old? Like if you do that, I feel like that's weird, but um, you know, it, they lay out all these like gigantic words in front of you. You know what I mean? That like, you don't, you couldn't possibly grasp what the true meaning of these things are. Even like the concept of like real service. You're that young kid. You really cannot grasp this. You know, you, you have these notions that you've picked up from books and movies, which, you know, comfort you when you're trying to make the decision, but you, you won't know it until you experience it. I don't think. And so that that's exactly just like I was trying to find a personality and find a, who I wanted to be in the world through the Marine Corps. That's what I did with those tags. I'm like, well, this is what I think you guys want or looking for, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just the irony too, of it being these plastic tags that they lay out in front of you. You know, it was just too good of an image for me not to try and mess around with. Yeah. They're hilarious. And I, I love how you talked about how, well, you could just replace his name tag with any <laughs> one of these benefit tags. <laughs> Because that's totally what they what they look like, and then so was that a um, was that something that you carried with you uh, throughout your time uh, in the Marine Corps? Like was that more uh, weight in your pack? Uh, this whole idea of like trying to live up to the perception of what everyone else had when you were still trying to figure out how you even perceived yourself. Or was there a time in the Marine Corps where you fi finally said, like, I am where I've always was supposed to be, and, and now I know really who I am and how I see myself as matching with how everybody else sees me? Yeah, you know, I, it, during boot camp, I completely drank the Kool-Aid and was a complete full cultist for the Marine Corps. You know, so I was like, this I've achieved. This is exactly the cycles I want to be around. You know, I want to be just <laughs> like my first senior drill instructor was this uh, kind of crazed 0311 um, that was in Fallujah. And I was just like, I want to be a disturbed war veteran like my senior drill instructor, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's what I wanted. And um, so through there, and then it's like, you've adopted this persona and you're like, this is who I am. So then you're trying to live up your persona when you think you can and can't. So it basically had forced me to always try to be the guy that cares carried the most weight on the hikes that, you know, just did the most grotesque thing that nobody else wanted to do. Um, that's just kind of where that led me. And, you know, it wasn't until after I got done, I was like, Jesus, what the hell just happened? You know, like, <laughs> you know and then you look back on it as the older writer sitting at the desk and you start to think to yourself, like, there's no possible way as an older person with uh, maybe a little more depth of thought that I could have done those things because you become so 
I mean, they catch you at the perfect time. The Marine Corps does because, oh. like I said, you're looking for you're looking for that experience, and you just you're like, oh, perfect. You just put the hat on, and then you you go. And uh, it's not until later you look back and you're like, because I had some Marines too. That one of my Marines was a 30 year old that came into the grunts. I'm like, and now looking back, I'm like, how did you do that? Like, how were you able to compartmentalize and do that? I was too stupid at the time to realize what was going on. So I just, you know, accepted it. But I bet it was, he didn't seem like it was, but it had to be a little difficult for him. Like I was 19, I think, and I was in charge of him as a 30-year-old man. I don't know if that, like, I'm sure he had to have second thoughts after the doors closed. But yeah, I don't don't know. There was a time when I, I thought I was, you know, this is exactly where I was supposed to be. And this is, you know, one of those, everything I wanted, be careful what you wish for things. Yeah. Well, um, you talked too in the book about how, uh, you know, machine gunners are, are even more left of center than like uh, your average, you know, O three XX and how there's a uh, sort of a brotherhood of, of, in the crazy. um, And uh, how did that, is that one of the things I know you you mentioned reading books about machine gunners, but was being finally being a machine gunner? Did that also sort of give you that like I am the weird of the weird now? Sort yeah, of thing? That'd be definitely in a line company. That was what it is, you know, because you're carrying the most weight. You're, you know, they always tell you. I don't know if it's true or not, but, but you're seventy percent of the line company's firepower, you know, and so you just feel <laughs> like I. You we are it, you know, and then you get attached to, you know, infantry squads out of weapons company or weapons platoon. And so you're, you know, a team of three guys among all these 0311s. And you're like, yeah, we're the specialists. Like we're the guys you call in when shit hits the fan. That's us. And you just, you know, and it's just more of the same, like, like you said, the weirder, the weird, and you just start to thrive on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if this data is out there, but I'm pretty sure Marine, uh, machine gunners have the highest rate of libo incidents of all the O3s. That's got to be that's got to be a stat that's out there somewhere. Yeah, I, as an AM tracker, I I don't know, man. I think I think we might have you just because it's a smaller community by per capita sort of thing. Yeah, that's but awesome. then again, you know, we've got the 40 and the 50, so maybe all of us are just sort of we get are rattled up in the damn harmonics of that vehicle so maybe we're all in the same boat um but how did that make you feel um also too as far as like um i'm trying to think of like when you are um sort of pressures uh obviously marines infantrymen probably in particular you've got all of these sort of standards that you have to uphold uh you know range 400 series during um you know itx's and mojave vipers um you talked about uh you know trying to be the top um machine gun squad um you know and getting all the accolades from the sergeant major on you as being such a badass uh machine gun team um you know there's all of these things these levels of excellence that you have to to maintain um that are external to you uh you know someone is telling you what the barometer is and then you meet it and excel and, and you, you exceed it um how does that work for you uh as a young grunt trying to figure out who you are but then having so much of of who you are being dictated by outside forces Does that make any sense um yeah i mean it's it's more of the same i think it's more of that same you know, wanting, like, I'm here, well, naturally, I'm here, I want to be the best that there is here, you know, and it's more that if maybe if I get the little piece of paper that says I'm the best machine gunner in the battalion, maybe I actually am the best machine gunner in the battalion, you know, and um, so that's just, to me, it's just more of that same kind of mentality of wanting, wanting more, and then now you've, you've, think you've got your identity, and now it's like, well, now I had to solidify it, you know, I have to try and, you know, we have to be the best machine gun squad. We have to be the best machine gun section. You know, I want to go to advanced machine gun leaders course, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you just fully, you're fully in it at that time. You know, you, yeah. and this is, this is pre-deployment too. So like I hadn't been exposed to any of the other, I mean, obviously you get the fun games that you play in the, in the Marine Corps, you know, which you're like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but whatever. And, uh, but you don't really get to experience like the insanity of a combat deployment and just the, you know, just the surrealness of that experience. So you're still this young kid trying to prove himself. And I think that a lot of that gets stripped away 
you know, when you have that first real interaction with combat. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive into that. Um, you know, we, we're talking about your book, Freaks of a Feather. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned uh, to you yet, man, how much I absolutely love your prose of this book and how amazing your writing is. Um, your voice uh, is so filled with uh, sort of a, almost a snarky cynicism, but then it, there's so much sincerity um, to it as well uh, as you are interrogating your own life and that your experiences is you really sort of invite us to do the same, not just with you, but then have it your writing reflect back onto us, the reader. And then we start to wonder, especially for us vets, like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I haven't really fully interrogated my own shit yet. Like mm -hmm. I haven't opened up my pack fully and seeing what is still in there. Um, I, I think, at least from my experience, you know, I was in Abu Hyatt, and I was, I was there uh, a few years after you. I was there 07, 08, and so you were in Hawk 05, 06, right? 06, 07. 06, 07. Oh, so, so yeah. I, got there, I got there in September of 07, so you guys were probably already out. Yeah. Um, but you guys had done such a good job of kicking the shit out of those guys, they all went into my AO. <laughs> so. yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's what happened to us. Like, I'm pretty sure the guys pushed all those guys out of Ramadi and they just kind of kept on the trail, you know? Yeah. So by the time we were there too, like there wasn't a lot of the stupid insurgents left. They, those, those guys had all pretty much been killed. And what was left was a lot of the, the real pros, you know, and the real pretty effective mm -hmm. fighters. And they were, yeah. they were really good at what they did. Yeah, the hardliners, yeah. Um, so just hearing a lot of you, especially you talking about like the the um, palm groves, um, and it was a lot of it just really resonated, but I, I just really, again, like my hat's off to you, the way that you wrote this because I feel like it was really an opportunity to not just listen to someone's experiences, but to really take a moment to interrogate my own experiences at the same time sort of through your sharing of your stories um and yeah so there was just so much that was coming out of there um i don't know do you really only i don't mean to like put you on the spot but like does it really come from just being an avid reader or is there something else there um that you were able to sort of tap into as you're writing this I, you know, I think it, it starts with, I'm uh, not sound conceited or anything, but it starts with a small modicum of talent. Like you have a natural ability to string words together and then that, that puts you on the path. You know, that's with just the talent by itself is absolutely nothing. You know, then you have to do all the hard work. And I think that the analogy I've been trying to work with, with writing, I think is it's like sausage making, you know, you have you know, you have this meat grinder essentially, and you start throwing in all these different ingredients, you know, one of them is your life experiences, you know, and then what else is like with the actual seasoning and the flavor that's going to make this digestible. That's, that's the books that you read, you know, that's the stuff mm -hmm. you expose yourself to. And, you know, you, you read books, some of the books you read and it's depressing because you're like, I'll never be as good as this person. And maybe I should never even write like uh, some of Joan Didion's sentences make me feel like that. I'm like, well, why am I even trying if this sentence is out there? But um, <laughs> I think you just, once you've read enough and you've worked enough, it starts to happen organically. You know, you, and like I said earlier, like you got to have the tools before you sit down to write. And I think that maybe that's why, you know, some of these really quality books are starting to come out now because it's taken a lot of us this long to pick mm -hmm. up these skills. Like you're not going to be a good writer overnight. You know, you might be, a competent writer, you know, but you're not going to be something that's, I don't think that's really worthy of being read until you've actually put in the hours to pick up these skills. And it's just like, as you know, I mean, you're an MFA guy, you know, like you start dissecting these um, stories and you're not, first you read through them and you just, you feel the story, right? You're like, you just let the author do what they're trying to do to you. And then you think to yourself, why did that story kick my ass so much? And then you got to go back and you got to start like bearing down on the sentence level stuff. And what is it that's doing these, making me feel these emotions? Cause it's not by accident. You know, these were intentionally put in here to elicit a certain response. And um, like one of my, I mean, this is 
pretty cliche, but, you know, Ernest Hemingway's uh, The Old Man in the Sea. He does this, he's able to pack so much in these sentences because he's he does so much work early on in the story that when he recalls these certain phrases throughout the book, like there's a line that he says, I wish the boy was here. And then every time he says it, it starts, you know, it builds momentum and builds yep. momentum through this power of recall. And then it also creates this relationship with the, the author and the reader because you're thinking to yourself, oh, I remember when he said this. And then you feel like you got brownie points because this is just between you and the author that you remembered this thing. But what it does is it just, it picks up steam and it picks up momentum and it, you have to use it sparingly. But when you do use it, it has this great emotional effect. And I think it's little tiny elements like that you pick out from books and then you, you maybe think about them, you meditate on them. And then they start to show up in your writing and hopefully they've, because I think we all, as writers, we all go through that phase of just copying our favorites, you know? And so a lot of our early work is just us trying to copy our favorite authors. And so if like you, you read a lot of Cormac McCarthy or something, you might start having these like page sentences, like page length sentences about God and mystic beyond and that's not you you know but you can take stuff from it you know and then once you you've read enough and you've written enough then it then it does start to become your own voice and so i think i honestly i do think it's just you got to read a lot if you want to write how long do you think it took you to develop your own voice and when did you become aware that you had your own voice as a writer you know i I don't know. I, I suffer from a, a horrific case of imposter syndrome. So I don't even oh. think, I don't even think that I have, that I'm even an author, you know? So that's hard for me to say, but I think that I, I definitely a few years, a few years when I, I started to quit trying to sound like other authors and sound like my own inner voice. And I started to say that like, if I want to say the F word in a sentence, I can say that because this is my voice and I don't have to write this formal stuff, you know, like I, I'll write how I talk and a better version of how I talk, but it'll be me that's talking, you know, it won't be somebody else. And I, I, you know, so a long winded way of saying years took me years. Um, going back. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Nancy. Go ahead. No, I was sorry, Vic. I was just going to say, I, I think that, people don't really understand and maybe you know maybe at the beginning of your writing career you know it may have been new to you to how many hours it takes to really how much work you have to put in to 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 be a writer it's it is not easy I mean I know when I was young and you know just starting my writing career I thought oh yeah okay I can do this this is great I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write and then you start reading what you're writing, like this is shit. I'm I'm mm-hmm. not a writer. I can't do this. Um, and and just really not realizing how much work it is, I think, is, is a surprise to a lot of people. Was it a surprise to you? You know, that was something that it, I luckily was able to adopt that mentality from early on because I looked at it like because I come from a construction background. My dad's a construction worker, and he's a a heavy equipment operator and he's just so good at what he does you know and it's it's because he's put in so many hours and so i kind of looked at writing like a trade like mm. the more i do it the more i work at it just like a carpenter gets better i'll get better too you know and so that was the mentality i had and so i never thought you know i mean obviously there's those moments of creation after you, you get done with a draft or something and you're like I am literally the best writer who's ever lived. And then you put it, and then you put it in the drawer, you wait a week, you go back to it, and you're like, I'll never let a human being read this garbage because this Get is the, the worst thing. And light it on fire. Yeah. Yeah. So I I hope I burnt everything from that time time period. But uh, yeah, so it's just and then I think you have to have that that ruthless honesty of realizing you're not good enough yet. And reading helps you do that also because you're able to compare your prose with these published authors who are considered the greats and you're like yeah i'm not there you know maybe i'll never get there but i'm nowhere close and you have to be honest with yourself and i can't remember who said the thing about uh editing you got to kill your darlings something like that but kill your babies kill your babies yeah it's it's (laughs) it's really difficult you know like because even editing this book there was a lot of sentences i cut out that i'm like I really like that sentence, you know, and it's difficult. 
because I and that was I had some good editors that started to call me out on my bullshit when I would just like be going on and on and on about a like a like a image or something. They're like, "Hey, dude, we got it. You can, <laughs> you know, abandon this and move on." Like, to the hey, next. George Martin, man, slow it down. <laughs> yeah, it's just yes. Yeah. So that was that was another good thing is finding 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 a good team to help you edit and help you because you can and i did a lot on my own but like you need that outside source because sometimes you get too caught up in your own bullshit and you'll miss stuff so it's really important to have a you know good team behind you that helps you edit these things yeah when i graduated from my program i uh the first thing i did was apologize to everybody for my first year (laughs) (laughs) you guys had to stay up late reading this absolute you know, fecal matter that was on the page. Like, so I really appreciate your patience. Um, but talking at the sentence level, because this is such an interesting conversation because um, I really, um, I don't know if you've read any, um, uh, like, uh, what is the book? Um, uh, How to Become Filthy Rich in uh south asia i'm drawing a blank i'm gonna have to edit it in anyways um he writes uh his prose is so amazing and it's at the sentence level you can just really like break it down um what is that like for you and it's one of the things i find almost uh absent in a lot of military style memoirs is this the, the attention to detail at the sentence level and my, my thought is, and I, I was awful, it, it, so it's not a, I'm not lobbing stones because I am the worst at writing about myself. Um, I took a self-story class and it was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken. Um, but to be able to get to that detail where you're you're analyzing your work at the sentence level, but at the same time, you're recalling actual events that have a history, that have life in your brain, that are visceral and tactile to you, but yet you're also then providing that artistic rendering of these things that are so uh, profound and provocative. Like, how does that, how was that process for you? You know, it was a lot of like, sometimes I'd be in the writing process and I would recognize a a section where I could use one of these things I've stolen from an author. You know, I'm like, oh, wait a second. I remember like my first, like the scene in, uh, when I first get to Iraq, I was trying to copy um, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood opening because he starts with this like panoramic view and then he starts, and I didn't do it as well as he did it, but I tried, you know? So I knew I was like, oh yeah, I really liked that part of the book. So I started with a panoramic view of Iraq, of the area we were at. And then I just tried to zoom in closer to exactly where I was going to be at. And so I think just like I said, you read and you get all these tools and you're like, oh, I can use this here, you know? And then I had that, that piece that was, uh, that was in the New York times. I thought about like, I want to, and it didn't, nothing ever turns out as good as you want it to. Like you have this grand vision in your head of like, this will be perfect upon completion. And then you just, you just can't ever get it to where you wanted it to be. But I started with it. Cause you know, when uh, Riviera died on that post, I was like, well, it'd be interesting to follow the path of the bullet, you know, and to see. Yeah. So that's what I started to try and do. Yeah, I love that. And, like even you know, it going over you know Marines' heads, even and yeah. like, but it, 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 the way you painted it so well was like, as I was envisioning it, everybody was oblivious yes. to this bullet and its in mm-hmm. its path. Yeah, and then just how random and indiscriminate some of these things are, you know, like a two-inch gap that he just yeah. so happened to be, and so that's. I think that's what it is. I mean, you, you, you pick up all these tools and then you, once you're in the moment of storytelling, you, you start to recognize like, oh, this is a spot where I could use a list like Tim O'Brien uses a list. Yeah. Cause yeah. one of the great things I love about his writing is when he does these long mundane lists and then put something profound, like a booby trap in the sentence that, you know, explodes and makes you, you know, feel weird for a couple of days. So I think it's just, you pick up the tools and then you're like, yeah, this is the part of the story where I can use this. Man. I mean, you do it, you do so well. Uh, so it, I'm again, like, I can't tell you enough, like how much admiration I have for this work. Um, because I understand at least from my perspective, how difficult it is, uh, you know, for if, if I were to even like just write 
in a journal what I did yesterday. It would be a couple sentences like, oh, I'm fucking bored and like, I <laughs> uh, wish I had a beer. You know, like it would be, yeah. yeah. So, um, but one of the things you were getting at earlier is like how I find it really difficult to write about yourself and not sound like a douchebag. So I think because obviously it's kind of a narcissistic pursuit to write a memoir about your own life. Like, who do you think you are that someone wants to read about your silly little life? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it takes a little bit of narcissism, but you have to really I feel like you have to really temper it with, you know, self-deprecation and that kind of stuff, because otherwise you're like, this guy just thinks he's the man and I don't want to read this. You know, like I don't I wouldn't want to be around this person. And I think that the self-deprecation is something I do naturally because I'm a super insecure person. So, uh, but I read a lot of George Orwell and then a lot of his essays, he's very self-deprecating. And it, uh, it just stuck with me. I'm like, yeah, that's a, I'm connecting better with this narrator because he's has an honest image of himself. And so that's something I tried to kind of carry throughout the book. Well, I, mean, I think, too, uh, we talked about it earlier, but it's the level of sincerity, because if you're self-deprecating just as a device, it's going to come mm -hmm. off that way. And you're either going to be even more douchey or <laughs> people are going to say, all right, we get it. Like, you think you suck. And then and then, it be, then there's distancing from the, from the reader then on that part as well. So, um, yeah, that's. It's it's a fine line, but I think you know going to Nancy's question, you know about about finding your voice, um, you know I think you have to go through that period where yeah you're just sort of mimicking your heroes, because that's how you sort of find it, and then at some point you'll get tired of that mimicry, uh, but you won't forget sort of all of the muscles that you were you know exercising while you were doing that stuff. So yeah, well like you were saying, like it has to. It... It all has to come from a place of honesty. So if you're not naturally a self-deprecating person, you probably shouldn't try it. That's my actual that's my actual personality. You know, like I go from moments of thinking I'm the man to I just need to go away in the woods somewhere so I don't poison society. So that's that's the, my two alternating personalities I have. Well, I think a, I think another writing mistake, well, at least a writing mistake that I have made is trying to write to please a specific type of audience or a specific reader. And when you realize that's a mistake and you say, I'm gonna write what I want, it, it might need some finessing and some work from somebody else, but I'm gonna write for me, not for somebody else. I think that that is a huge breakthrough. It was for me anyway. What about, did you have, either of you have that moment? Well, I think that, um, I think that's a trap a lot of people fall into. And a lot of, I think that I mean, I don't want to talk shit about MFAs because I didn't get one, but I think that there's there's a particular style of writing. That's Hold on, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a head call really quick while you're talking about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that there's a there's a particular kind of writing that comes out of these MFA programs, and some people, some authors fall like fall prey to this to where they're writing for that MFA group as opposed to writing like they're trying. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but there's no. a particular particular kind of MFA writing where you're like, oh, this is the experimental prose that's going on. Like, and it just seems artificial to me. And, no, and you're, totally, you're like, oh, my cohort is going to love this in workshop. You know, that's totally what happens. Um, but like anything with a fine line, you do need to know your audience. I mean, for me, I'm a fiction writer. So, uh, and, and very genre specific. So if I don't know my audience, I'm going to write something that's not going to make sense for the hardcore person or the novice because it's just like what do you write like what is this well you so, are your own audience right so that's where you know right. exactly. so you're writing for yourself because you're the kind of person that likes to consume these books so you yes. know like oh i would think this is horse shit i definitely shouldn't include this you know so right. i read a lot of a lot of memoirs you know and i know what work i think i know what works and what doesn't work so you can kind of you know you, you kind of are your own audience yeah no that's so, that's so good um, I guess to talk, so it, where uh, another aspect of your book that it was so um, enjoyable to read was obviously the realism, and which we'd hope for from a memoir. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But um, I guess as you're looking back on it now, um, on, you know, we've got a bunch of, you know, obviously Afghanistan went tango uniform, um, things in Iraq just right before then with ISIS and everything. Um, I wonder, and this isn't a fully formed thought, and I know I, I'd wrote it, I'd written it down, um, so maybe you can help me sort of unpack this, but 
you mentioned in your book about all of the various types of um, Iraqis that you came across. And I think Hoklania was a really good place to sort of have these very varied experiences. Not to say that like Fallujah vets or Ramadi vets or Huseba vets didn't see that, but in a very sort of, I think there was much uh, a much more um, defined duality or dynamic a bifurcation, if you will, of these environments. You had your insurgency, and then you had the Marine Corps and, you know, the the multinational forces. Haqqaniya, where you were at, Abu Hayat, to a certain extent for me, that those lines were very blurred. Like you said, one day, the reason that we were finding so many, I, the Iraqis were finding so many IDs, but because the people that were implanting them are now wearing police uniforms, and so they're digging up their old caches or they're putting in the IED so that they can find it and get a reward for it. Um, so we were watching El, uh, Ambar province sort of make this transition or transformation or whatever it was. But the one thing that didn't seem to go away until we got there was this idea of like the fighting season or of like these tribes that had, you know, we'd heard all about, you know, these guys have been fighting each other for thousands of years, you know, especially in Afghanistan. It was like, you know, these, you know, Pashtuns and, and, and Dari and, and northern and southern Af Afghans have been going at it since Alexander's time. Um, anyways, there was, uh, there's a point to this. Um, so where I wonder, we as the West, we come in with this very modern um, concept of war. We understand that, like, if you have an enemy, you destroy that enemy. That's how this works. But the East, especially in the Near East, because they had had this tribal thing for so long, there was this idea that, like, well, we're going to just settle scores. We'll probably create new things to get upset about, but it's winter, so we're going to go back to the farm, we're going to go back to our village, and I'll see your ass in spring, and we're going to go back at it again. There was not this idea of, like, total annihilation. Like, even when, I mean, shit, if you read the Bible— they talk about, obviously, the Hebrews moving into the promised land, but whereas they were talking about the destruction and annihilation of the Canaanites, two chapters later, they're now trading and, and working with, and, you know, there's this warning, you know, don't marry the Canaanite daughters because of their, and it's like, well, I thought you guys just destroyed them. So I think we just have a very different view of what uh, how to deal with your enemy. Right. I mean, what are your thoughts on some of that as you're looking back on your book and your experiences, um, this idea that like we sort of introduced the world into this, like you have an enemy, they must be destroyed, which leads us to like, you know, these ISIS conglomerations and things where they're like they're now doing total war, whereas they mm -hmm. kind of weren't before. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, you know, is that Clausewitz, the, you know, total war situation where you that's you decided that the entire society is going to get behind this and destroy this enemy, you know, scorched earth. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think that it's in the West too, is certainly in the United States. We're so far removed from war, you know, where these people, they grow up with it. They, it war is just the constant state of being this conflict, you know, like bombs go off, grenades get thrown. That doesn't happen in the United States, you know, so we don't have this, this concept of like, this is just a perpetual state of, being so we essentially when we do get into a conflict like that is our because it's so foreign to our way of being that it's like we assume that this is we have to go and annihilate this enemy completely you know for these people this is just they come from generations of warfighters you know so it's mm. just and i think another thing to remember or to at least think about with this is they don't necessarily want what we have in our way of life and these kind of things. And I think that that can get caught up and in, in kind of people can't conceptualize that maybe they're living the life that they actually want to live, you know, and this is yeah. kind of, this is their state of being, and this is the way they want to be. And I don't know that for a fact, cause I'm not them, but I think it's, I think it's pretty, it's naive to think that they want what we have, you know, when they come from such a different society. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I think that's one thing a lot of people don't think about is like, and maybe they like the way they're doing things over there. And this is yeah. not our business. You, know? you had a section in the book where you talked about um, 
uh, and I, I apologize if I don't paraphrase it correctly, but you had talked about how, uh, you know, many times you would get shot at the person or you, we were talking, you were talking about the death blossom, actually, the Iraqi mm -hmm. death blossom and the value of just pulling the trigger and sort of being there at the time, but not really having any real intention of actually hitting your target or killing someone. You're just there to, sh to sh you're showing up, you're pulling your trigger and you're doing your duty. That was, that is doing your duty. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and so I wonder about that and too, like, um, so, so I, I thought that was a very interesting perspective coming out of your book because one, it made me laugh because I remember the death blossom very well. And um, this chaos, dude, it was, I, and my buddy actually, who was on one of the MIT teams, um, had mentioned that exact same thing. That like, if you know what's good for you, you're just going to get down when they start mm -hmm. doing this thing because it's going to go everywhere. Mm. <laughs> yeah, really. I felt for the guys that got put on those mid teams. It just was, it was, uh, I mean, those guys were, I mean, everybody was in danger, but I felt like those guys were really living, you know, on the edge there because you just didn't know who these people were. There's the language barrier, and it's the Marine Corps, too, so it's not like we're getting the top interpreters to come work with <laughs> us. You know, like, yeah. most of the interpreters, we can't even understand the interpreter, you know, or maybe the interpreter doesn't even speak this certain dialect, so they're yeah. completely used. We don't, we just don't know what we don't know. So it's, yeah, those guys, my hat's off to them, because that was, that was a rough job. Yeah, my first uh, linguist in OIF-1 was Egyptian, and uh, he was an awesome dude, but man... They didn't understand him, and he didn't definitely did not understand them. And so I was like, "All right, man, just don't eat too much chow, man." In the back of the <laughs> yeah. dude. I uh, I remember too. I think I have it in the book somewhere. But my Italian friend who took a like two days of language training, and so that was he was good enough to be our our go to guy for interpretation of these things. And he didn't know what to do, so all he would do is speak louder in an Arabic accent, <laughs> speaking English. And I'm like, "Oh, this is pretty classic here." <laughs> Um, so, uh, looking at some of your work post your book, so the public, you, you get published, <clears throat> it comes out, how was it received? Uh, really well, you know, um, they, you know, this, a lot of this stuff is like, you're sitting down at the table and you're remembering things and it's your, I tried to verify as much stuff as I could when I went through, if I had a question about something, I would go talk to people and I tell some stories um, about situations where I wasn't there. You know, so this is obviously just an amalgamation of all the stories I heard about this event. And so there was a couple of people that got mad at me over like not being like some of those stories where I wasn't there. They were like, this is not how this happened. I'm like, like in the CP when the suicide bomber takes out your battalion commander, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, you know, even that uh, uh, the scene with Riviera when he gets shot, you know, like yeah. I was in the smoke pit. But all I I just went off of what these stories that these guys told me. And so you, you're never going to get it perfect, you know, because if, you know, 10 people are at the same event, you'll get 10 different stories, you know, mm -hmm. so you, you do the best you can. But for the most part, uh, it was, you know, all my guys really enjoyed it and really liked it. And so that was that was some of the highest, you know, if the guys were there with me were like, yeah, dude, you captured this. That's the highest praise I could possibly get. And I got a lot of feedback from uh, a lot of spouses that said that, like, I always wondered why my husband was such an asshole and now I have a bit of an idea, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it was good because I think it helped a lot of people connect and, you know, maybe it's something, if you can't, if you can't verbalize something, maybe you could gift this book to someone and then maybe they could have a better understanding of kind of what you went through. At least it can start a dialogue, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when I talked to you last year, before we uh, published an excerpt from Freaks of a Feather in Leatherneck, you talked to me about how therapeutic you found the whole writing process and uh, how it helped you make sense of your experience. Um, can you, can you talk about that a little bit more for the listeners? Yeah, I think, um, you know, prior to putting it down on paper and trying to tell the story from, you know, A to Z, it's the story and the events, they kind of they can, you know, expand or contrast in your brain as big or as little as they want. And sometimes they can be all consuming and they kind of live in your head as this kind of amorphous monster that can bend and twist and make you warp reality. So you, but once I started putting it down on the page and I started looking at these experiences as just a story, you know, they kind of lost this power they held over me where they were really kind of jacking up my life pretty hard. 
And so I was able to, I was able to just put it down on the page once and get a little distance from it. You know, and once I had that distance between my eyes and the page and I could read it as just a story, it did, it did, it just didn't seem like it had this control over me like it did before. And I think that, the, I think, I don't know what the mechanism is at play, but I think it's real. And I think that, you know, even if nobody ever reads what you write, if you're struggling with something and you try to make sense of it on the page, I think it's time well spent. And, you know, certainly was for me. I don't know if that'll be the case for everybody, but I, if you're struggling with something, I highly encourage you maybe just write about it and think think on the page about it because there's also something else about writing because it's you're thinking and then there's the time lapse between your thoughts and then when it actually gets on the page and i guess that also gives you a little space to think about it and uh, i think it can be beneficial for a lot of people have you had any opportunities to talk to fellow veterans about doing just that yeah i mean anytime i do an interview or anything like that i'm always telling people they just i mean you even keep in a journal uh even if it's like, I mean, you don't have to have been a, I mean, everybody carries stuff with them, you know, doesn't matter if you were a combat vet or anything like that. And I think, you know, journaling is one of those lost arts that people used to do for, you know, since, you know, the inception of writing, people used to keep journals and that's, we can go back and we can, I think that the people from the 18th century have far more eloquent journals than our tweets and our social media posts and that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think it's a good practice, you know, if you want to, I, I think it can only help, you know, I don't think it's ever going to hurt you. And, and, and so you've continued that um, on, you've got, uh, are you, have you mentioned the New York Times article um, and you've written for Task and Purpose, um, specifically did a book review of uh, Tom Schumann's book, uh, Always Faithful. Um, we've had him on a couple of times. Uh, I mean, really, uh, you know, great guy, great Marine. Um, what were your thoughts on on that book? I I just thought it was exceptional. Um, I know uh, one of the guys pretty well, too, that helped write, uh, Worth Parker. I think he's a very he, – he helped out a lot of the um, – the Zach chapters, you know, and I, I really yeah. admire as a writer. And um, it was just a great story. It was one of those things too, where I'm like, I'm reading a story about a dude who's a better human than I am. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he just is, you know, I don't know if I would have done what he did. And, but it was, you know, I never went to Afghanistan, you know, and I never knew what it was like. And I never, I heard stories and that kind of stuff. But that chapter those chapters while they're in and discussing like this world of landmines that these guys were living in. Like, I think they did a really good job of capturing just the kind of anxiety and then like hopeless bravery, you know, that just like these guys have to keep you guys, I guess you just hope that the metal detector works or that you don't miss it. You know, like I thought I did a really good job of kind of capturing that kind of angst and horror that we we experienced to a certain degree with IEDs and that kind of stuff but like man those landmines and stuff like that was that was a jarring section of the book and I thought the whole I thought the whole book was really moving and I'm not a person of faith you know and those and obviously those two people that's a central part of their identity so it's just it's interesting reading a story like that because it's out we have similarities you know even though that Schumann's an officer and I also have opinions on officers, but uh, he, uh, it was just, it was interesting to just to hear his experience and his perspective. And I think it's super important to get all of these different perspectives on this stuff because an officer's perception of the world is far different than a Lance Corporal's perception of the world. And I think to get the whole story, you need both, you know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed the book a lot. Yeah. And there's levels too. I think one of the most hilarious parts of your book was how, uh, when you're talking about the generals going through the fratricide data, and then when they're done, then they, their big choice was which sandwich they're going to eat. Um, so in there, there are levels, right? Because, you know, Tom uh, is going, you know, here right now, he's the uh, opso of 3-5. But when he wrote the book or this, you know, what he, his experiences in Afghanistan, he's a platoon commander. So, I mean, you know, the Tom Schumann of 2009, 2010 is not going to be, you know, the Tom Schumann even of today as far as like, perspective and worldview. So I think it was really, uh, really well done how they capture that. But then, I mean, those last few chapters trying to get Zach out of Afghanistan, man, like I, I could feel my heart racing and like I was like breaking out in sweats. And the, the pacing of that book was, was really well, good, well done. Um, so you had mentioned um, then about 
sort of in your book, you'd mentioned some of your regret uh, and some of the, the emotional toll that not having gone to Afghanistan sort of weighed on your heart. Um, how did reading Tom's book in his perspective, like, um, did, was, was that, uh, in, was that a perspective that you, or was it interesting to you more from a literary standpoint or did it force you to do some more reflection interrogation on what, what you've got going on in your head? Um, and yeah, I guess just what were some of your experiences sort of outside just the, the literary analysis of the book? Well, I mean, really all of the above, like th there's some, some really beautiful sentences in that book and, uh, I can't, I don't want to butcher it, but there's a, towards the end, there's a, a feeling of, there's a sentence that has something to say about like, no man should ever like be on the street with his children as the world mm. collapses around him. I, I yeah. butchered that, but that was such a beautiful sense and such a profound thing. Cause like I was talking about earlier, like we don't have that experience here. We've right. never had that complete collapse that they suffered there you know and so that was just that was really profound but yeah no that the, the not going on that deployment to afghanistan it'll probably go down as the biggest regret of my life you know because they it was one of those things where you don't know but you you think you could have made a you like to believe you could have made a difference you know and then mm -hmm. those were my marines that i trained and then i just got out and i let them go in my place is what it felt like so it was you know, it was good. It was, I mean, cathartic in a way just to kind of get a glimpse of what those guys experienced, you know, um, more kicking myself in the ass about just like, man, you really should have went with them. You know, you kind of, I felt like I really owed it to them to go with them on the deployment. And I just, I just got out and didn't do it. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely something that reading that book definitely brought back a lot of those feelings, you know, and I, I write, I write about them in the book, but uh, Matthew Lemke was a good friend of mine yep. who died, died mm -hmm. from that deployment. And uh, he's one of those people that you don't think could die. You know, he's like this, like when you when you think of the perfect Marine, a guy like Lemke is who will pop into your, he was just so good. I mean, so fit. Every, he was just completely squared away. And he ended up getting attached to my company, I believe. And so that that's the simulation I always run through my brain is like, if I was there, would things been slightly different? Could I have done something, you know? And maybe I'm not, you know, probably not, but it's, you can't stop your brain from doing that, you know? So it was, it was good. It was, it was definitely good to get that raw perspective from that book. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Well, that's awesome, man. I will do. Um, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you, you sitting down with us. Um, you're currently at uh, Gonzaga law school, right? That's correct. In the last year, there's a pinprick light at the end of the tunnel. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you, is it is it like uh, what we hear about medical school? Like the first year is like absolutely insane. If you can survive that, then it's the rest of it's kind of. It's pretty funny, man. So like my undergrad was creative writing, right? So you would get you would get assigned a substantial amount of reading, as you know, like you know multiple books a week. And so the first assignment I got was a 15 page assignment, and I was like, you're this is law school. You're going to assign me 15 pages. Like what a joke. Well, I get into it and I start reading this old archaic case. It took me four hours to get through the whole thing. And I still had no idea what I'd read, you know? <laughs> so it's essentially a year spent of learning a different language to be able to even kind of understand what these weirdos are talking about. But it's, and I, the cynical side of me thinks that lawyers keep everything as complex like this so that we have to stay around, you know, because you yeah. have to, have to go to school for years to even understand what they're saying so but it was the first year was pretty rough pretty rough but uh the the general saying is the first year they scare you to death second year they work you to death and the third year they bore you to death i'm waiting to get to the board part because it's still pretty yeah, rough like, bring it on i'm waiting yeah <laughs> because i'm a glutton for punishment too i i'm the managing editor of the law review so i just oh, wow. i won myself the opportunity to work on you know just extra hours that have nothing to do with my actual school stuff. So like I'm in the law review office right now. Most of the time I'm like, why, what have you done? What yeah. have you done? Hey, talk about engaging pros though. Right. Man, I mean, you just gotta like, yeah, well, that's one of the, one of the benefits is I think one of my weaknesses is like straight up copy editing, you know, that's like mm -hmm. one of the things I need to work on. So this is a 
a good experience for me because the stuff is so dry and a lot of it I do not care about at all. I am, I do just look at the sentences for the structure and I'm like, okay, well, this is passive voice, can't have that. You know what I mean? So I kind of get <laughs> the actual, actual material and just look at the sentence level stuff. Okay, so I can 100% relate to everything you just said. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that you can relate to that. <laughs> And what is, uh, what's next for you then? What, what is the law degree going to facilitate for you? Um, I don't know. Are you, are you familiar with Scott Terrell? Yes. Yeah. He's, uh, he wrote, uh, presumed innocent. They made a Harrison Ford movie out of it. I'm hoping to be like Spokane's off brand Scott Terrell, where he's a lawyer and also an author. That's what I'm hoping for, you know? So just like a, a, a store brand version of Scott Terrell. Um, but yeah, just, I'm hoping to, because as you guys are well aware, it's hard to make a living as a writer. You know, I'm going to continue doing it forever, but I needed a good job because I've got kids and they got to go to college. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm just hoping to work and keep writing as much as I can. I'm working on a novel right now and I should be done within the next 10 years or so. Awesome. Well, you'll probably beat me to mine. I'm uh, <laughs> two thirds of the way done and uh, I haven't touched it in over a year. So I'm well yeah, on one of those things. You get done with it, the first draft, and then like, okay, now you're thirty percent of the way done with your book. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. monumental task. I applaud you. Well, man, this has been absolutely great. Um, where can our listeners find you? Um, do you have like LinkedIn, Facebook? Uh, yeah, all the above. Just plug in my name, and I'm. I think I'm on everything but Twitter. I don't do that. Hold, I just am. I'm too old, you know, I just never got into it. So yeah, yeah. agreed. Yeah. We can, where can uh, listeners find your book? Where can they buy it? Um, so they can buy it um, directly from the publisher, Laytop Books. Um, it's on Amazon. You can get it through Barnes and Noble. Uh, for whatever strange reason you find yourself in Spokane, Washington, uh, they sell it at Auntie's Bookstore downtown. Um, and you can order it from their website too. So it's always nice to support a little bookshop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we ran uh, an excerpt just for anybody who's an MCA member and has access to the Leatherneck Archives. In the January 2022 issue, we ran an excerpt from the book with a, a short interview with you that accompanies it. And the book is Freaks of a Feather. Casey Tellison, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, best of luck to you at law school. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your service, and man, and, and thank you for writing this book, man. It's so good. Thank you very much, and right back at you too. It's I really enjoyed the uh, the conversation. It's always good to run into a couple of book nerds too. So, yeah, 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 awesome. Great. All right, man. Semper Fi. Thanks. Bye. Bye. is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Anthony Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association. 